Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is, of course, a production of the Pop Sequentialism website. And um, I will send you also to the Matt Kennedy page on comic art fans, where you can see some of the amazing, incredible, original comic book art that we have for sale. Also uh, sponsored by La Luz de Jesus Gallery, Wacko Soap Plant Superstore, Gallery 30 South out in Pasadena, and uh, Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, where we record. And one thing I want to talk about quickly, we'll get this uh, off the docket pretty fast, and then we'll, we'll head into our topic. A lot of people who've been on the show lately have had some very interesting things happening, and I want to give some shout-outs to them. Um, Mylon Sarley, who we had on the show talking about cosplay uh, back, I think, in the first 10 shows, um, has just had a cameo appearance in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And if you follow her on Instagram or any of her socials, um, you'll have seen pictures of her at the premiere. Fans of the show may also know that... um, James Gunn is going to be picking up a third Guardians of the Galaxy movie. It has been announced that he will be returning to direct a third film. And uh, let's see, we've, um, we've seen a lot of new publications from people. And if you go back and look at some of the, the names of the people that we've been talking to in the last oh, year and a half now, uh, you'll, you'll see some people who are starting to pop up into the news. If you didn't know about them before, you'll certainly know about them now. And so I thought that in in this particular episode, um, it would be nice to talk to somebody who's very much a part of the show that we don't really hear from, except occasionally when we shoot questions over to him off mic. And uh, that's Mason Booker. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Huge fan of the show. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Mason is, of course, our engineer and records the vast majority of the shows that we've done and is, is very much a big part of the show. And we're going to talk about a little bit some of the alternative careers that you can have while you are working on your creative endeavors. And, you know, we've spoken in the past about, you know, production designers, um, people, or I should say people who work with production designers producing the key art for movies and book covers and that type of thing. And we've, we've spoken to professional cosplayers and we've spoken to people who, um, design the actual video games and work in anime and, and write for, you know, animated films. And Mason's side gig is kind of a really incredibly visceral one. I think that, and he's probably going to demystify the romance of it, but the if you think about a lot of the material that we read and which has encouraged people like, you know, um, Ed Brubaker and the people who are writing some of the best really good noir comics out there, it's going to center around the American justice system and, and the legal system. And it's just one of these jobs that if you didn't know people did it, you wouldn't even know it existed. And I'm sure, you know, that in other cities all across America, there are people that perform this task. And it can be a really quick, especially in other places, I think more so than Los Angeles, a really big, you know, climbing stone, if you will, to professional filmmaking. In Mason's case, it's it's backwards, I guess, in a way that he started out as as a semi professional filmmaker and and has picked this up as a gig, which is is fantastic. And you know, one of the things about living in Los Angeles is that it's a lot more expensive than it used to be. And you hear us talk about that on the show a lot when we talk to people who've been out in California as long as I have, and we start shooting out, you know, the numbers of our our rent, what they were before, and what they are now. 
But uh, before we address that, I want to also talk about some events that I have coming up. And one of which is actually today. And so by the time you hear this, the the reception will be open, but the show will be up. And I also want to talk about what will be coming down the line after that. So at Gallery 30 South, which is at 30 South Wilson Avenue in Pasadena, and which you can follow at, at Gallery 30 South on all social media. We have an exhibition that opens today with uh, Eric Min Swenson, who people in the in the art world, and if you're following the Huffington Post Arts or if you're following Coagula and different art-related sites that seem to be Los Angeles-centric, a lot of the photography that you'll see on those on those sites is by Eric Min Swenson. And Eric is a a a Vietnamese American who was raised predominantly in Texas and moved to California in the late 80s to become a filmmaker. And he's he shot, at this point, over 800 short films about the arts in Los Angeles. And if you follow him on his social media, it's, it's just a constant stream of images of every single gallery opening that you can imagine. And it gives you sort of an insight of the very different types of art that is on view in a city like Los Angeles and probably most large metropolitan cities. So he's on not just a documentarian, he's also a painter. And some of the work that he's been working on has a very Klaus Oldenburg feel to it. He's done a series of flower paintings. I bought a couple of from him a couple of years ago when I saw that he was painting and I thought they were really fabulous. And we had an opening in the schedule. We were able to pop him in for a 10-day show. And he brought in another artist named Betsy Ensensberger, who is familiar to people in the art scene here in Los Angeles as well as a contributor to Fabrique Magazine, F-A-B-R-I-K. The photo independent show has been going on this weekend, which is sponsored by Fabrique and was combined with Fabrique Fair. So there was a really great assortment of great local independent photographers and galleries that represent them and independent artists from all over the world. I actually bought a piece from a Japanese sculptor who was included in the Fabrique show. And it's just fabulous work. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the Japanese art in a, in a future show, contemporary Japanese work. And I also want to talk about what's coming up is an exhibition with Doss House, which is D-O-S-S-H-A-U-S. And it's a, a, a couple, a, 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 a man and a woman who work in corrugated cardboard sculptures that are life-size cardboard recreations of actual objects. So you'll see a life-size cardboard piano. You'll see a larger-than-life-size anvil. You'll see bookshelves and records and books. And they generally dress in monochromatic uh, cardboard clothing during their shows. And it's sort of a, a performance aspect of what they do. And we will announce different performances throughout the exhibition of the month of May, and they have the entire month. So from the first day of the month to the last day of the month, it's all Doss House. And if you're also following us, you'll know that on the 15th of each month, we generally have a paint and draw at the Gallery 30 South with the Gallery Girls, who are a very uh, well-known and basically at this point, world-famous organization of art models. And they do a lot of cosplay and do theme nights and that type of thing, and you can follow them at, at Gallery Girls. So I think that one thing that be, again, before we head into our main topic of uh, side gigs you can pick up in the creative arts, that I want to talk about some of the things that are, are happening right about now. 
I know that kind of dates the show a little bit, but then we'll give us a little bit of perspective later on. And I want to talk about uh, a film that I saw very recently, and it's just debuting on on Netflix right now, and it's called Castles of Sand. And if you haven't seen it, please, I, I recommend it. I say go out and see it. It stars Nicholas Holt, who many people may know from the original Skins show on British television and may know him as playing Hank the Beast in the X-Men films. And in this film, he plays a, a young Marine, and he's stationed in Iraq during the first, or I should say the second Iraq war, the, po- the first post-9-11 uh, Iraq war in, in Afghanistan. And it's the most different type of war film I've seen since Platoon, in that it really discards a lot of the myth of bravery and explains that a lot of the bravado in young soldiers is born of fear. It doesn't have a lot of 40-year-old guys with the hair slicked back, you know, uh, lifting weights in the middle of the desert and doing bench pressing. It's got a lot of scared young people. And sometimes that fear makes them hilarious in that in that type of environment, things are so tense that you're constantly looking for something to break that tension and that means a lot of, that everything is pretty funny until it isn't and then when it isn't and the violence in this film is very believable and real and hurtful and not um sort of an extravaganza and like a previous netflix film beasts of no nation it doesn't really pull its punches and i think beasts of no nation should have been nominated for best picture i don't know if it was because of the the dates in which it was released and what the rules were with the academy and how many places it had to play but um, that film was, I think, completely robbed of an Oscar nomination, several actually, in my opinion. And I think that this film is of that caliber in a very different way. And I think that it's also one of the very first films we've seen, probably since Three Kings, that um, treats the people whose country American soldiers are in as an important part of the story. And in this particular case, you've got soldiers who are working on repairing a, a water pipeline, and they have to form these these bonds with the with the local Iraqi people. And it's it's very realistically portrayed. None of these people are cannon fodder. Everybody is somebody that you you want to learn more about. So I I really highly endorse it. And for uh, people who are looking for something that is a little bit more, you know normal situation but tense relations if you haven't been watching uh, 13 reasons why i highly recommend that i'll fully admit that i cried like a baby during a couple of the episodes it uh it's the type of of film that i think also realistically portrays high school life and and teenage life in in the contemporary now and uh, revolves around a very um how shall we say controversial subject of teen suicide and it does not pull its punches at all in that respect either and if you do get a chance to watch it, I know everybody binge watches everything these days, you can do it in 13 hours. So with all that aside and some of the things we've been talking about, I want to get right into it now, right after this break. And uh, when we get back, again, it will be Pod Sequentialism with I, your host, Matt Kennedy, speaking with our engineer, Mason Booker, about alternative careers in the nerd lifestyle, right after this. Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And we have with us here today Mason Booker, our engineer. Hello, Matt. How's Hello. it going? <laughs> Very well. This time you actually get to talk. Yeah, I'm with it. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> so um, what we wanted to address in this episode is, you know, we've done sort of a series within the series about the other types of careers that you can have that aid 
in sharpening your skills towards creativity. And when you moved out here, and you moved here from Baltimore. D.C., but yeah. D.C. area. Yeah. I certainly worked in Baltimore. Sure, sure. Sure. So you were working on film stuff back there? Yes, a lot. I worked on just about everything that came through the D.C. area. So I worked on The Wire. That's probably the most famous one. And then I worked on Game Change and Die Hard 4 and mm-hmm. anything that looked or even remotely maybe was shot in D.C. House of Cards. Yeah. All that. Don't you love how he just throws the wire out there like, ah, oh, the, one, the one you might have probably heard of. You know, well, that, considered you, by most people to be possibly the greatest television series ever. Yes. So that's usually my lead. Yeah. And, uh, and to finish with House of Cards, that's a good bookend. Right, sure. So you had been working on original scripts and you had made a a short, well, a, yes, a, a pilot qualifies as, as a short film, but yeah, it, it is a pilot. Yeah, it was a backdoor pilot that we were trying to sell to sci-fi. Mm-hmm. That was my big plan. I, I do drama and sci-fi primarily, as mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I wrote it and we tried to sell it out here. And now what was your budget on that? 60. $60,000? 60000 yeah. And there's a lot of pretty well textured and very professionally pieced together green screen stuff. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, the production design is is expert. And certainly the the acting is of a local level, but the best of a local level that you're generally going to get. Yeah, I think it's put together on love and favors. Mm-hmm. And we wrestled with it and got the best that we could mm-hmm. out of what we had. Which is what you have to do. And I think that... Absolutely. And especially since the idea was not to say, hey, we want to air this. The idea right. is to say, this is what we're working on let's do this and use this as a template. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that you can do that. Right. In order to save money, a lot of people will just say, well, let's just make a five-minute trailer or a little mm-hmm. sizzle reel or something or, mm-hmm. or two-minute trailer just so they get elements of what we're talking about. What ended up happening was we started to do that and I realized we're building all the sets and we're making all these costumes anyway. Yeah. Well, let's just make the episode. Right. Like, but I think a lot of people also don't understand that they can make something, they can make a feature even, mm-hmm. And they can use that feature as the blueprint for what will come in that second stage so that it doesn't, you don't have to make on a limited budget the film that's going to get released. You can take a finished project to a studio and say, hey, this is what we did for $60,000. For $6 million, you can bring in names and we can do this in a way that is going to have a broader commercial appeal and that's something we can really, really build on. For sure, especially if you're able to actually get a meeting. Right. That's the big challenge. That is the big challenge. Right. And of course, once you have one project ready to go, you need to have three other scripts written in case that one doesn't take, because they're like, hey, we like that this guy has vision. Right. So if you've got this and this and this other thing, maybe for whatever reason, maybe they have five sci-fi projects in production and they don't want to go with the one that they've seen, Mm -hmm. you can hit them with a comedy and like, oh, wow, this guy's really versatile. We can give you assignment. We can have you write this and this. Or you know what we have this other project that we were going to do and we lost the star and with the star we lost the the um, actor so you might be perfect for this and we like how you worked with these inexperienced actors and we think it, that we can really build off of this and that's I think a part of you know the Hollywood dream that people don't really know and someone that we've had on before Houston Huddleston who is you know the main proponent of the Hollywood Sci-Fi Museum and now the Hollywood Horror Museum and, and that talk about traction. I mean, if if you're gonna follow anybody that we've had on the show, 
following his updates daily is kind of like every day is this major announcement. It's pretty inspiring. Yeah. And he's a guy who was really just a film fan who was making his own stuff, um, shooting stuff honestly in his backyard and with friends and other people in the, in the business. And certainly I would, I would show up and do stuff occasionally. And he would constantly get meetings with BBC Two and BBC Four wow. based on these little templates of... I'm shooting this to show you the script so you can understand how it's going to work. Right. With a budget, it's going to look more like what you want things to look like. Almost the Lars von Trier thing, except, of course, Lars von Trier would shoot on a soundstage intentionally, and that's the finished product. <laughs> right. But it's it's interesting to see that there are some people who do understand that that is a metric and something that can be used, and I encourage people who are creative and want to get their dreams out there that it's more important to make something than to make something great. Yeah, my axiom that I tell people is 90% good and done mm-hmm. is better than 100% good and then never done. And never finished. Right. I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll kick your numbers down. Go ahead. I'll say <laughs> that if it's like, if it's 70% good mm-hmm. and finished, then it shows somebody that you can make something. Right. And that's what they're worried about. And so when you've heard about the problems that happen on the set of Fantastic Four, you know, with a a young writer-director or team right. and the director getting a gig based on one project that they had in the can that they're able to do with complete control without any oversight themselves, that that has to be able to translate into being able to work in the system. And having something finished is a really fast way to get a lot of money thrown at you to do a project. Then it's all on you. Right. Then it's, yeah. you carry it. So... Let's talk about what it is that is your day job. Sure. Unfortunately, I haven't broken through yet. So as you pointed out, living out here is very expensive. It is. And although I love producing the podcast, it's not quite enough. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I fell into audio court reporting. That's pretty much my freelance day gig and how I pay my bills. Mm -hmm. And explain what that is to people who may not be familiar. Sure. I'm, I'm sure actually many people are not. So anytime you go to court, usually if there's a trial or there may be a trial, Mm -hmm. there's somebody called the court reporter who is there in order to transcribe everything that is said Mm -hmm. during that time to produce what's called the record. They Mm -hmm. always say, is this allowed into the record? What is the record? Whatever. This is the record. Mm -hmm. This is the transcript of everything that was said and done during this time. And it has to be 100% accurate and it becomes a legal document so that going forward, if anyone has any dispute Mm -hmm. about how the judge acted or how the lawyers treated their case or if they got a fair trial or not, Mm -hmm. this is the record that they look back on. And this is basically performed by the court stenographer. That's right. So the court reporter is typically what's called a stenographer and Mm -hmm. they're the persons they have the elaborate typewriter which is actually kind of a phonetic keyboard it's Mm -hmm. very interesting and they will type everything that's said in kind of a weird shorthand and then once everything's wrapped up they go home and transcribe it and produce the record but they're very expensive because they are literally typing down everything everyone is saying in real time right in front of you which is like a 120 word a minute yeah. Job sometimes. Right. In or, and in order to qualify for it, you have to go to school. I believe it's a two-year program, mm-hmm. possibly three. I can't remember. But very expensive. And with mounting costs, everyone's looking to cut corners, including the court system. And with the advent of technology, what they came up with was splitting the stenographer into two positions. One was the audio court reporter. And this is what I do. I mic the courtroom. Mm-hmm. 
and then I record everything that is said and I take down notes. Someone says methicellulose or something like that. Or they'll say, I lived on Flabbergast Street. And because hearing that later, it may not be exactly clear what was said. So exactly. it's good to take notes and while it's happening. Exactly. And yeah. you have a running time code. So you, you know you, where to pop it. You pop it in. And then if there's any questions when everything's over, I'll go over to the petitioner or the respondent and I'll say, you mentioned this. Am I spelling that correctly? Or Carolyn Marshall. Is that with a C? Is that with a K? Is that one L, two L? You get everything down. And then I gather the notes and the audio and I send it to a transcriber Mm -hmm. and they just listen to the audio and look at the notes and transcribe everything and make the record. So it's the stenographer basically broken into two parts. I could also be a transcriber. There are many court audio reporters who also transcribe. And I will tell you, if you want to make bank, be a transcriber. Right. (laughs) Because you can only get the record from the person who transcribes it. And it goes down for each copy. So there's the first copy mm-hmm. and you get a certain dollar per page, basically. Mm-hmm. And then there's anybody else who wants a copy. The first party cannot copy their copy because it may influence it. They may do something to it. Right. So it's kind of like when you go and get something notarized. Like whenever exactly. you, having been married to two immigrants, you there have you to go. go to the court and right. you can't just present a Xerox of your marriage certificate exactly. or anything. You have to go and get an actually, you know, stamped, certified copy of it. Right. And it has to be provided by an impartial, neutral party. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what notary publics are. And yep. often audio reporters need to become notary publics mm-hmm. in order to handle exhibits at, say, a deposition or something like that. Right. You need to be a verified neutral third party. I don't care which side wins. Right. So anytime anybody wants a copy, they're coming to you. Mm-hmm. You give them a copy and you charge a page count. The amount goes down after the first transcription because you don't have to do any more work. It's just printing it out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But still, so if you want to make bank, mm-hmm. uh, be a transcriber. I have not yet received my transcribing certification. I don't want to do it yet. Because that's going to occupy a lot of your time. Well, that would be the rest. That would be the career. Yeah. I would record and then I would transcribe and then I would just buy a house and that would be the end. Yeah. But um, my, my dreams aspire beyond this. <laughs> but the audio part, obviously, it's very similar to what I do here and what I have done for years in film and video production. I've run sound and I've also done everything you can on set. So when I went for the interview, they basically said, oh, do you think you could mic a courtroom? And I just said, I can mic anything. Yeah. Because when you're on set, you mic anything. It can't be seen and it has to be perfect. It has to yeah. sound great. And the glorious thing about miking for audio reporting is you can just stick the mic right in front of the people because nobody cares if it's seen or not. Right. And I passed the test with beyond flying colors. So. Nice. So how did you find out about it? Yeah, it was actually pretty crazy. I was working in Maryland mm-hmm. and I don't know if you... You probably know, Matt, you're you're a wise man. Uh, Maryland lost its film incentives for a while. Yeah, a lot of states right. do. It, it comes and goes. It depends. Exactly. Yeah. So, as you know, when a state loses its film incentives, people stop going there. This is right after the wire ended. The new governor came in and was, I'm terminating the Maryland tax incentives, which effectively killed our pretty much thriving film community. Everyone pulled out. They went to Georgia, surprise, Yeah. Uh, who had upped their films. As a result, there was not a lot of work going yeah. on. And I. And what a dumb thing to do. Of course, I agree with you. 
it was pretty crazy. The new governor has reinstated it, and they've started getting work back there. Well, it doesn't hurt also that Georgia's incentives are being offset by, oh, sure. you know, um, discrimination <laughs> lawsuits and companies not wanting to be associated right. with that. And now they lost their governor, so we're going to see what's going to happen there. Yeah, I refer to it as a secret war. It's yeah. the secret thing that's going on that no one knows about unless you're in the industry. Right. Anyway, as a result, I was very starved for work. So I went on Craigslist and there was a Craigslist ad for an audio court reporter. And just like you had mentioned earlier, I was like, what is this? Yeah. But I had worked in a law firm. When I got out of college, I worked in a law firm for a couple of years before I switched over to film. Peeling back the layers of the <laughs> onion that is Mason <laughs> right. Booker. All right. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. I'm, it's riveting. <laughs> so yeah, I contacted them. And I was pretty much like you said, just what is this? Mm -hmm. And they explained it to me. And I said, no problem. And they said, do you have any law experience? I said, I worked in a law firm. They said, great. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sound experience? I said, yes, I've run sound and, and film a video for a bunch of years. And they said, when can you come in for an interview? Wow. That was it. So you started this back in Maryland. I did. I started it in DC and Maryland and it was great. I like it because it's very flexible in terms of time. It's almost part-time, but you get a full-time rate. Yeah. So one Who doesn't the, want to get paid for eight right. hours, four hours of work. Exactly. It's like acting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I think, the main benefit to it is you are half day, full day. Mm -hmm. So if you show up, and even if nothing happens, if you show up and you're there for five minutes, you get minimum four hours pay. Yeah. And then if you show up for four hours and one minute, you get eight hours pay. Yeah. That's great for me because- Often I'm working less than eight hours, getting eight hours worth of pay, and it still gives me enough time to go home and work on my stuff for film and video. So out here, that's a great boon. I hope we're not creating an entire uh, generation market of competition for your position. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Because this is paradise, you know. And, well, but it's also, I mean, I, you, you don't get that much. Right, right, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. Now, um, you know, it's definitely tedious work. Sure. But what we mentioned, of course, before... Um, before the break is that by having access to real courtroom, I mean, to a real courtroom, I mean, I was going to say to real courtroom sure. situations, but it's an actual courtroom, you're going sure. to get aspects of character and aspects of story that because you're in the courtroom recording it, you get to see and hear so that if you were to read back the transcript, you have a perfect picture of what just happened. But you also see in the transcript what isn't being told. And so as someone who's writing for a visual medium right. and writing film, you know what to put into a script that brings that actual color back into the, the, the black and white page. And so it's a great training discipline. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that what you're talking about is true, but I got that from my English creative writing degree. I think that's what really instructed me on how to breathe life into the page and how to bring character and whatnot. And then, of course, working on scripts for a good number of years is mm -hmm. really what drove that home. What is really good that you touched on is witnessing and recording all these dramatic events that are yeah. going on in people's lives. When people show up in court, it isn't just, hey, show up in court. It's, it's one of the worst days of their lives. And yeah, if it's, it's not, been, it's the second worst. Right. And it's been building. People are not unaware that they have a court date. It's yeah. something that's been building for months and months and months and months and months. The entire goal of the justice system is to get you to settle. 
because yeah. then you don't even go to court and everybody has time to work on other stuff. But if you show up at court, this is it. This is the time. And it's a very dramatic situation. And definitely I've seen people's true colors. Human nature is mm. on display yeah. and all the the machinations that go with it, especially if they have high powered attorneys. Mm-hmm. And that, that must be part of the reason why the courtroom drama became such a staple of early television, because anybody oh, yeah. who had been to a courtroom saw the most extreme examples of melodrama that you could have, that they had to actually tone it down for television. Sure. And I think now what's happening is that there's there's... You read a script and people are used to seeing all kinds of crazy stuff on TV and they're like, this doesn't seem exciting enough to me. And so you're having access to just all kinds of high volatile, you know, like you said, every possible emotion, but all of them on 10. Yeah, every everything's amped. Not not always. Right. There's times when it's very mundane, yeah. but mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's criminal. Yeah. If it's criminal court, so there's civil court, criminal court, and then I've I've just started doing tax court. Oh which wow, is, that's got to be dull as hell. It's a mix. Yeah. Sometimes it's people coming in and just arguing the finest point of minutia about the tax code, which yeah. of course is a ten inch thick book. Yeah. And other times it's these people who's lives are being destroyed because they can't pay the taxes and they can't get the government to settle and they can't cut their losses. And so they're coming to the court to basically plead their case in the most earnest way possible that, you know, I'm a good citizen and and I'm trying to do right, but I'm I'm crushed by life. (laughs) And as someone who's imaginative and as someone who's writing, you know, in in fiction, Mm -hmm. capturing the essence of that gets you, gives you the opportunity immediately and in real time to to think about at a later date when it's when it's done recording right what if this personality type is led to this particular instance and so you can sort of counterplan and work backwards from a testimony an entire story that isn't necessarily the story you saw in court but is believable because you have so much access to what's being spoken about. So you have not only access to some of the most realistic dialogue that anybody's going to have access to from people who are in extreme situations, Mm -hmm. you have in front of you what you're looking for when you cast it. If you get to the point where your page turns into a production, even if it's a play, and I think that that type of thing really plays well in live theater as well that sure. you know exactly what you're looking for because you saw it it's not an imaginary situation you have all these different archetypes to pull from and different examples of each archetype and different ethnicities of the characters in those archetypes so you get access to a broad range in the most diverse way possible Everybody you can imagine has been to court, whether they're wealthy, whether they're poor, whether they're 10th generation Mayflower families or fresh immigrants, um, whether they're black, white, Asian, whatever you want to say, whatever denomination, and you have access to it. And you've seen all of them in a multitude of different situations, and you get the idea that people act a certain way, regardless of what their background is. Yeah, that's true. And you hear lawyers talking about that a lot. If they've been doing it for a couple of years, they start 
well, not all of them, but often you'll hear them talk about how they really nail down human nature and human yeah. emotion and they can read people right. so well. So that's definitely true. And I agree with you. It's definitely put my dialogue on the next level yeah. because I no longer have a tin ear. Now I yeah. can write as people speak, which I think has benefited my scripts tremendously. I used to actually, when I was more interested in, in writing and directing mm-hmm. short things in the early 90s, and before I became an actor and, and had access to a kind of a, an, an aspect of that filmmaking world that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. So it was it was both more complicated and, and less inspirational to know how things really worked than me just grabbing a Super 8 camera and setting up a situation, having access to an empty courtroom and shooting stuff. Sure. That um, it was a help and a handicap. Yeah. It certainly kind of gives you, I guess, a creative edge, mm-hmm. but it also, in the same way that After I started making film, Mm -hmm. watching film, it demystified it for me and I was able to see all the flaws. In the same way, now if I watch a courtroom drama, for instance, I just just watched Goliath starring Billy Bob Thornton. Mm -hmm. And it's so wrong in in how they portray the courtroom scenes. But I mean, whatever. Well, even Law and Order is. Oh, of course. You know, Law and Order is the the greatest example of an awarded show that is completely unrealistic in many aspects of how the case rolls out. Right, right. The one thing you learn from Law and Order is just don't talk to the police. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah, they definitely take artistic license with Mm -hmm. everything. And I understand that you have to in order to keep things moving at a brisk pace. Because otherwise, if you have ever done anything in the real justice world, it's very long. You know, you'll show up and nine times out of ten, your case is continued. You'll be back in six months and then you're in the back room talking with the lawyer for 20 minutes. Oh, I have a case that is that is pending now against my the the bank that loaned me money for my my mortgage years ago. And yeah, how long is this? We're three years in. There you go. Yeah. Three years in. And I have no idea what's going on with this case at all. No, no attorney. Oh, the they're they're not very communicative. Well, it's that... a class action suit. Oh, okay. But I do have an actual attorney. Okay, good. And um, we'll see what happens with that. But it's so. Let me ask you this too. So, what sure. are some uh, what are some examples of a film or television where you think they really got it right? Like surprisingly, like you're like, whoa, this is the first time I've seen someone handle this correctly in a long time. Oh, uh, that's a good question. The Rainmaker struck me as more sure. realistic in yeah, a lot of ways. The John Grisham stuff is closer. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. There's what? not a lot of them. There's not a lot, but you don't watch it for the realism. I mean, yeah, I still, you watch it for the drama. Yeah, I still watch Perry Mason. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You know, I st- and Law and Orders, great. Yeah, it's a very entertaining um, show. I think it's one of those things where you don't want it to be too realistic, or it'll be boring. Yeah, That's- which might have been the problem with Homicide. Oh, sure. Homicide: Life from the Street, a Baltimore show, that which led to the wire, which led to the wire, and also led to Law and Order. I thought Law and Order was before Homicide. No, no. Homicide's before, and um, and actually, one of the actors plays the same detective he played. Oh, no way! In um, in Law and Order, and mainly Law and Order SVU. Oh, and I, so I love Homicide SVU. was a Barry Levinson production, you know, like oh, the, okay. the King of Baltimore. Right, right, right. And he was working with who is it that does Law and Order? Is that Stephen Bochco? No, it's um, Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf. Dick mm-hmm. Wolf Productions. And so certainly there were um, parallel tracks being being taken. And certainly The Wire is has grown out of that. But yeah, you see the the character that the the stand up comic um, 
Oh my gosh, I can't think of his name. And a lot of people probably in this generation don't realize he started out as a stand-up comic because they know him as the detective on Law and Order. Oh. But he plays the same character in in Homicide and Law and Order. And the that show was a little too close to reality, I think, for people. Right. And so they didn't get all the big drama. They got situational um, stuff, kind of like Hill Street Blues. Right. But this was even more... A little too much real life. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say now that you mention it. The realistic court scenes that I have seen mm-hmm. are in crime dramas, of course, like The Killing. Mm-hmm. And they're so short yeah. that it doesn't really affect anything because they're not showing this entire trial. They're just showing kind of you, everyone shows up and it's kind of five minutes of banter and questions and then mm-hmm. verdict. Right, right. <laughs> and that's kind of it. And now, um, I also want to let people know, in case they don't, that, of course, Mason is the host and producer of Anime Attic. That's right. I got it. I got bit by the podcast bug when yeah. I came here. So I also produced my own podcast, Anime Attic, for the Meltdown Network. You mm-hmm. can check us out on Anime Attic Love on Instagram and Twitter. And we just had Luke Chu. Yeah. Just like you. Yep. In a recent episode where we talked about live action Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. And we've got more coming down the pike. And we, we asked a couple of very different... So if you've listened to my 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 recent second interview with Luke Chu, where we talk about Ghost in the Shell from a you know the standpoint of the remake and by an Asian American perspective, um, Mason's show in Anime Attic is, is a very good second half of that and actually was recorded first where right. they, they delve more into the original piece and how you each were moved and influenced by the original anime. And so it's a great twofer if you want to um, follow up that that episode of Pod Sequentialism with Luke Chu with uh, Luke Chu on, on Anime Attic. Yeah, I was going to say, they're actually a really good part one, part two. Yeah. You should definitely listen to them back to back. I, yeah. I encourage it. Now, as you continue into um, into the other endeavors, and I want you to talk about a little bit because we're, we're going to wind this down and... Certainly, every city has a courthouse. Yes. And so, and that's actually, I think, what qualifies a city from a town is that cities have a police department and a, a courthouse so that anybody who's interested in, and qualified to, to do this same job can look into it. And in a lot of cases yeah, where, certainly can. where it may not be existing yet, just getting a call from someone who can do that may get you the job. So like if they're only using a court stenographer and they're not using video and audio or, oh, right, right. or specifically audio and you have that set of skills, you can approach your local courthouse and say, hey, you know, have you thought about doing this? This might save you some money and I can do this service. You could. I don't know if that would work. Everything's kind of regulated by government contracts. Right. So typically there are firms, court reporting mm-hmm. firms that handle everybody they handle stenographers and audio reporting and video reporting yeah. which is something that i i want to get into the court videography is great there's a lot of money in that certainly we saw all the oj footage because exactly. they had a video yeah bank. element yeah bank let me tell you about that yeah. also you have to record video at depositions yeah bank yeah a lot of bank on that i know quite a few people who have who have shot video depositions yeah. and a lot of video depositions with entertainment companies yeah which then got them in the door to shoot 
actual stuff for the entertainment company oh. that came in for the deposition. Well, that's that's lucky because yeah. normally the, the depositions are just a dude sitting in front of a microphone and against some sort of backdrop. But yeah, if you got it, you got it. But uh, normally you would approach the firms, the court reporting firms, right. and say, uh, I have the skills. Are you looking for anybody or whatever? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're freelance, they'll pretty much often hire you. And what they do is, let's say there's an office in Chicago, mm-hmm. they will cover the surrounding states. Mm-hmm. They'll have Chicago and then they'll also cover Illinois, Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. And if you're in one of those states, then you just reach out, I'm in the state. And then they don't have to send someone there. Right. They'll just contact you and say, you're local. And so, they're not reimbursing for gas and for hotel travel, stay. Yeah, yeah. Travel and uh, hotel and mm-hmm. food. If you're lucky, you'll get a little you're stipend. Yeah. yeah. If you're lucky, that's not... That's not too typical. But yeah, so for instance, my first gig when I was out here was from the company back in D.C. Mm -hmm. because they're nationwide. They were saying... um, Oh, we need people in California. I said, I'm in California. Mm-hmm. So that's that was how I got the first gig here. And then I got picked up by others as well. Well, awesome. So I, I hope this has illuminated for people. Yeah. Another one of those sidetracks of things that they can do while they're pursuing you know, their creative dream. And it's not something that is antithetical to a creative dream. It's not something that will give you moral or ethical pause. It's just a another way that can actually help sharpen your skills on your way to creating that piece of, of wonderful fiction that you want to involve yourself with and that you want to build your career and and future life upon. So I want to thank Mason for stepping in on this. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And uh, you've been listening to Pod Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.